Welcome to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, hosting insightful conversations with fascinating people to shape the way that Britain interacts with the world. In this first episode of the year, I talked to Andrew Bruce about the bumper election year of 2024, with over 40% of the world's population living in countries holding national elections this year. We hear his wisdom from 20 years of experience in international election observation missions and related work. And we take a whiz-stop tour through the elections of most global consequence, the elections that could lead to protest or violence, the elections that won't be genuine, the conflict or crisis elections, the controversial elections, the potential upsets, the good news stories, the political risk elections, and the surprises. So welcome, Andy. I'm really, I'm really excited you're here because this is our first podcast of the year. Uh, but also, we're talking about elections, and it turns out the 2024 really is a big year for elections. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm really excited that I'm talking to you about it because you have on the ground experience of elections internationally. And so I'd love you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Tell us about yourself, your background, and particularly that aspect of what you've done in the past. Well, thanks so much, Anna Joy. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to join you today. And thanks for thanks for asking me to, to join you. So my background is that I worked for about 20 years in international in international election uh, observation. I was very fortunate to start in the um, in the mid 90s, just after the fall of the Berlin Wall in, in 89. I started working uh, in 94 on on election observation, uh, and it was a fascinating time. It was a time when uh, the whole methodology for international uh, election observation was just being developed. Uh, and I, I, I started work for, an, for a non-governmental organization in London and then moved to the uh, the OSC, the OSC's Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights, which has the unfortunate um, acronym of ODEA uh, in Warsaw, uh, where I spent four years working on elections in um, Eastern Europe, the former Soviet Union, the Balkans, uh, and then four years working for the European Union election team uh, throughout the world, uh, and then four years at the United Nations in the Department for Political Affairs before returning to to an NGO in London. So uh, it was an extraordinary time to be involved in those early elections, those early elections after the the, the, the Berlin Wall had fallen, the first, the second, the third elections, as we saw democracy um, become alive in some countries again, uh, and of course face significant problems in others. Um, but a, a real privilege to, to to work on elections during that time. And give us um, a little bit of an idea of what that means when you when you go and you're an election observer somewhere. What what does it what does it look like? So, what a, a credible election observation would involve um, the deployment of a a core team of experts, um, normally around about two months before election day, maybe about ten or so election election experts. And they will look at all aspects of the election. So they will um, look at the legal framework. They'll look at the voter registration, the performance of the election administration, the campaign periods, the media, um, voting, counting, tabulation of results, and, and then the, the post-election period. Uh, and there's a very 
very well worked out methodology to, to do this very, very rigorously and very, very carefully. And when it's done properly, it should really assess um, the compliance uh, of an election of a country with international obligations, international standards for elections. Um, and then you would have long-term observers that would tend to be deployed around about six weeks in advance of election day in pairs uh, throughout the country. Um, and then over the election day period, you'd have short-term observers uh, arriving in the country, which could be uh, 20 or 30, or it could be several hundred or even even one or 2,000 in, in rare cases. Uh, so that's how a sort of credible yeah. observation mission tends to, tends to operate uh, today. Yeah, and the international community pay a lot of attention, don't they, to these missions and in terms of their own response then to the election result? They, they do. Um, I mean, I think particularly in the, um, in the early 2000s, there was a sense that there was a huge amount of attention being placed on the assessment of, of observers. I have a feeling that, that as it's become a bit more routine, um, maybe as uh, as democracy is not such a priority as it was back then to to, to some countries and to some uh, to, to some uh, international organisations. It, it's I, I'm wondering whether election observation is receiving the same degree of attention as it did then. But there's always you know there's always an election that suddenly pops up and suddenly election observers can be right in the centre of that story. Mm. And I've always been struck when I've uh, talked to people who have done uh, been election observers that you really get within those few months you really get the opportunity to get under the skin of a country, don't you? you you're kind you of do. really in depth into the politics, the economics, what the population is feeling, thinking. Um, you do, you do, and, and that experience is quite quite profound experiences seeing people engage in democracy. You've summed up very well. It, it's a tremendous privilege to go to a country and, you know, be given the access to meet with an extraordinary range of people from um, government officials, senior politicians, um, uh, civil society leaders, media um, representatives, um, members of the security forces. You really get a snapshot uh, of a country, and you really feel that when election, when international and citizen election observation is done well, it really, really can make a difference to a country. And there's, you know, there's there's been examples of countries around the world. You know, think of elections in Ukraine or in Georgia uh, or in Nigeria uh, or in Pakistan or Liberia. You know, where you can really see the 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 strong impact that. Uh, elections have had in terms of um, strengthening, consolidating democracy, um, preventing conflict. Um, it's not always the case, and I think that uh, election observation is certainly not always done well, and that's a, a, a you know, that's something to also reflect on as well. Um, but when it's done well, it really, really can have a big impact. And I think it's really important to mention the role of citizen observers. These are, you know, people resident in the country. Um, 20, 30 years ago, they were not um, receiving huge amounts of attention. Uh, uh, but, but, but now, some of the best uh, election observation that's being done around the world is now being done by citizen observer groups who are often risking their own security, um, personal situation um, to you know, to try to really tell the truth about elections, um, and have also become really 
sophisticated in, in, in the methodology they've developed and, uh, and are using. And I love this that we've started here, actually, because it's a really good reminder ahead of <laughs> what we are now going to do, which is a whiz through of lots of different elections. It's a yeah. really good reminder that an election anywhere in whatever stage of democracy that a country is at is a moment for that country. And you've talked about the different different groups, different, I mean, that's different parties. It's also different civil society groups. It's the media. That's There's a moment around elections where that's right. there's engagement, there's opinions, there's views. And so there's, there's an important moment for the people. But there's also, as you mentioned, always heightened risks of conflict. There's security questions for a country. And my observation from seeing some of the African countries go through elections in different parts of that continent is there's also a real moment for younger generations, right? Engaging in 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 their country's future whatever that looks like. I think that's exactly right. And I'll, I'll give you a, 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 what I hope is a good example. In in 2000, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyz Republic, had a uh, an election. And up until that point, Kyrgyzstan was being referred to as the Switzerland of Central Asia. It was sort of seen as the, the country in, in Central Asia that was really making, um, you know, seemed to be making some democratic uh, uh, progress, and then an election was held, and by uh, and the OSC observed it, uh, and they produced a really critical election, and that really was the point at which um, questions started to be asked about uh, the reality of uh, of democracy in Kyrgyzstan, uh, and I heard I don't, I don't think this is true or not, but I, I I heard that the the president at the time, President Nakayev. Um, you know, after receiving the the uh, the report of the election, was drunk for three days after receiving the report because he was so upset about what it had said about the country. Um, but it really, it really was, um, uh, it, it really was a, a, a an assessment of an election that that was a revealing, I think, and, and subsequent events, uh, I think, I think bore that out. Y- you mentioned also about young people. Absolutely, I mean, I, I've seen young people, uh, and it very often is, you know people in their 20s and 30s that are really behind these civil society uh, organizations. I think of the Ukrainian Committee of Voters, for example, one of the leading um, citizen observer groups in the world, really, um, who you know, mobilized you know, very, very young people to really take a stand for elections um, and to try to, to help improve elections in, in Ukraine um, over the last 20, 20 years or so. But there's many other examples that, that could be quoted uh, like that. Yeah, and so so we come on to 2024, which is a big year for elections. And in fact, it's been dubbed history's biggest ever yeah. election year. <laughs> I, I think it's true. It's extraordinary. I think um, over 40 countries, and because those include large countries, it, it means it's at least 40% of the world is holding national elections. And then when you rad, add in regional and legislative elections too, it becomes over 60 countries, 4 billion people going uh, well, with the opportunity to go to the ballot box. That's right. Um, but of course, we know that not all of those elections present populations with a choice, and right. that we're, that will come out as we cover. So, so a big year, and 
there's plenty of coverage happening at the moment at the beginning of the year that looks in depth at each of these countries. Mm -hmm. This podcast is not trying to do that. Uh, but what we are trying to do is, is give our listeners a little bit of a flavor of what's coming and yeah. what's out there. Um, perhaps some hints and tips about what to watch. Um, and a little bit of just a quick tour that looks at some of the big ones to watch, some of the interesting ones, some places where it's quite a moment in the country's history. I'm really grateful to you for <laughs> being up for the challenge of this conversation. And Pleasure. so shall we dive in? Yeah, let's do it. We wanted to start with the elections that have the biggest global consequence, didn't we? Well, I think we have to start with the United States, don't we? Um, exactly. It, 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 it's the I was going to say it's the elephant in the room, but it's 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 the it's the um, the election that's waiting for us towards the end of the end of the year that is really going to shape our world for you know for for years to come. Um, who would have thought that we would be talking of, of the U.S. election um, in this way with such concern? Um, but we must do because the events of, of of the last few years have really shown that the American democracy is really under threat at the moment in a way in which you know no one no one was 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 really predicting uh, I remember going to um Florida in 2002 after the do you remember the the election of 2000 where the hanging Chad election that was eventually decided by the Supreme Court and resulted in in, in Bush being um, becoming president. Um, but I went there, went to Florida two years later for the OSC, the first time that they'd ever sent a mission to to the United States. And we went to Miami Dade County, where the um, where the the problems had been, and we looked we looked at the you know at the situation there, and. I was amazed at the number of problems that we identified with elections in America, okay? And that should really have been a warning to us. But, you know, back there, there was a sense that there's huge trust in the system. You know, we don't need to raise too many concerns. And yet the concerns were really staring us in, in, in our faces. Um, and we should have really taken them far more seriously um, as we did. Because look at look at the situation that we're in, that we're in today. Uh, a situation where... Yeah, at the moment, it looks like we're going to see uh, a race between Joe Biden and, uh, and uh, Donald Trump. But I think you know it's it's far from certain that that, that, that will be the case. Um, questions questions about will Biden stay in the contest? There's there's real speculation that he may pull out because of his uh, his age, uh, and he would do that probably quite late in the day. So that that's one uncertainty. Uh, of course, the other the other uncertainty is about. Trump himself, he's he's in court facing numerous very very serious charges, uh, and there are four in particular that 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 are, are very serious for him. And I think the the likelihood of him being convicted on at least one or two of those before election day is really quite quite high. Um, added to that, we've now got the Supreme Court that will probably decide whether he will remain on the ballot after uh, Colorado. Uh, the Colorado has, has removed him from the ballot, um, and also also Maine as well. So, so that will be um, that will be a, an interesting test. I mean, I think it's it's expected that um, it's you know. So of course it's a it's a court with a, a conservative majority. So it's expected they will probably rule in his favour. But they're going to have to work very very hard, I think, to find strong arguments. And I don't think it's don't think it's absolutely impossible that they could rule rule against. So, 
you know, at the moment we're looking at a, a at a Trump Biden race, but I I I have a feeling something's going to happen, and it may not may well not turn out quite like that. I think Nikki Haley is someone to watch who, who seems to be gaining in uh, gaining in gaining ground at the moment, and you know, I think is a more sort of um, mainstream candidate. And I do wonder whether at the end of the day she might be the the, the candidate that. That 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 is the nomination for for is the, is the Republican nominee, but we have to watch that very carefully because it has such uh, implications for the whole international order. You know, were Trump to win, would he pull the US out, US out of NATO? Would he pull the US out of climate treaties? Will he pull the plug on funding for Ukraine? These are huge, huge. Um, uh, questions that will that will really have a, a, a an impact on us uh, in, in Europe and, and around the world. Yeah, they're huge, and each country around the world will be trying to to to, to guess, trying to build up the scenarios, trying to mitigate or position in certain yeah. ways, right? Because That's because right. because of the impact, as you say, on on defence, on trade. I think it's also interesting that the US being more isolationist, whoever gets in, is 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 being looked at a lot and affects how countries trade across the world, of course. Yes. We are going to be looking and talking about this the whole year, aren't we? We, we, we really are. We really are. And I think, you know, it, it's it's really worrying the potential for, for violence as well. We saw... Yeah. You know, on January sixth, who would have who would have imagined seeing those pictures on 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 January the sixth? You know, you know, what, is it three years ago? Um, uh, that just shows the the tensions that that exist, the political tension that now exists, uh, and the way America has become politically divided, and that's going to have to be handled really, really carefully. Um, I think what's what's encouraging is that you know, the Constitution has held uh, up until now. Um, and also, if we look back at the, the last elections, you know, the election officials really did their duties. You know, both Republican-nominated and, and Democratic-nominated, they really held democracy together, if you like. Um, and let's just hope that, the hope that, that, will, that, that will continue um, for this election. But it's, it's, it's going to have to be handled really carefully. And I, I, I hope that, you know, civil society groups and in America are really thinking about the role that they can play to try to um, reduce the potential for, for conflict with these, with these elections. Something else to consider with the, the US elections is the, the way in which a lie about the last elections has been so believed by so many people. I mean, it, it's quite clear that these elections, the 2020 election, elections were, um, you know, were, were conducted, you know, well. Um, and the Trump, Trump and his, his, you know, those around him or, or some of those around him you know, spread a huge lie that has then been believed by, you know, millions of people in America. And that is a very, very dangerous situation. I think it shows the impact of social media, but it also raises questions about what's going to happen after these elections. Is is another lie going to be perpetrated that could lead to something even worse? So that that's something that needs to be watched as well, very carefully. Yeah, thank you for raising that point. That's extremely important because I and mean, it's the case as we talk about elections across the world, isn't it? That a population's level of belief in in the process of an election happening and how fair it was, the result is or isn't, is 
is extremely important in terms of the population's reaction to that result and therefore security, conflict, um, community tensions, there's a lot of things that unravel. That's right. If there's the deep belief that something was wrong. That's right. And I think I think also we are, let's not forget, we are in the very early stages of social media. It's something we are only starting to understand the impact of and particularly the impact on elections. I mean, it's quite clear that we were not prepared for the role of social media and the role of interference by by, by foreign powers, the Russians in particular, but also others as well. We simply weren't ready for it in the US or in the UK. And we still have not properly, I think, certainly in the UK, investigated the degree to which our Brexit vote, our, our elections may have been yes. manipulated. And, you know, in 20 or 30 years' time, I'm sure we'll look back and we'll we'll know much better how to handle these things. But the impact this is having on elections around the world, I, I think, is huge. Uh, some positive things. I mean, I mean, the way in which, you know, if you're at a polling station, you can now take a picture of the results and send it back to your headquarters if you're a civil society organisation. That has massively increased transparency. Uh, but at the same time, you know, social media is causing division, uh, in, outside uh, influence. Who knows the degree to which this is going on and, and having an impact on election results? Yeah, and that's a huge theme for 2024. It is. It, evolving and unravelling in front of our eyes, as you say, especially with the, the very rapid advances in AI. And we've certainly seen that in various regions uh west africa particularly there's huge spread of fake news yeah. and real challenges around around populations and communities being able to really understand what's happening or not happening in their countries but as you say every country is affected by these trends and so yeah as we look at over 40 countries going to going to the polls every one of them technology the and the impact of ai and potentially other countries outside of the country trying to influence the result really is uh, one of the top top global trends right yep. now so should we go on to taiwan first election yeah. of the year yeah, so so Taiwan goes to the polls on the thirteenth of January, so so very soon, um, and these are elections with uh, you know real geopolitical importance. They're elections that will that will shape the the island's relationship with China uh, and take place amid deepening fears that China might uh, invade the island. Uh, the the front runner is from the Democratic Progressive Party, the uh, the pro independence party, and uh, and is expected to win. Um, uh, when, when the elections and uh, for the Democratic Party to also win the par Progressive Party, also to win the parliamentary elections. The opposition is the, the candidate from the, the Kuomintang Party, um, which ruled Taiwan from 49 until until 2000, of course, is more friendly to Beijing and expli explicitly advocates for, for reunification uh, as a key, a key plank of its party platform. So, you know, the importance of these elections cannot be overstressed. And of course, with the, the potential reaction from China and subsequent, subsequent reaction that could come from, from the United States. So it needs to be watched very, very carefully. Yeah, absolutely. And for anyone interested in more about that side of things, just pointing people back to the December, last podcast of uh, December, where Peter Apps covered the Taiwanese and 
China relationship and the US's involvement in the region very well. So pointing back to there. But we expect to see a lot in the news, don't we, about this election? We do. We do. Um, on to on to India as another big one. Yeah, I think India. The Indian elections are are also going to be you know, watched very, very carefully and of huge importance. So India is now the world's most populous con- democracy and world, the world's most populous country, actually, having overtaken um, uh, China a few months ago. Now, what's interesting is this is the biggest election event that takes place in the world. Um, in fact, it, it's the elections are not held on one day. They're held on a number of days in different parts of the country between April and May. So you don't know the results fully until uh, they've been completed. So Narendra Modi, been prime minister since 2014, um, leader of the the B the BJP, which is the world's largest uh, political party with more than 180 million members. Makes you think, doesn't it? Hoping to be elected uh, again for a third term, uh, and is generally expected to 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 the, the BMP, uh, the B, the BJP, uh, uh, and no Modi are generally expected to hold on to their majority and possibly even gain seats, but. There has been a development. There's now a new 28-party opposition coalition, the Indian National Development Inclusive Alliance, India, very cleverly, um, that could, there is, a, there is a possibility that they could thwart Modi's, Modi's uh, attempts here. So, you know, Modi expects to win, but not a foregone conclusion. Um, and there is a chance of a, of, a, of, a, of a change of, of an upset and a change of power there. Um, of course, Modi, very popular in, in much of in, in much of the country, but also really uh, being criticised um, for undermining the country's democratic institutions, jailing and intimidating journalists, um, and also, of course, um, sanctioning, condoning violence against the Muslim minority. So, you know, a controversial figure in India and, and around the world, um, but. Uh, someone who probably will still be in office this time next year. Yeah, and India, of course, an extremely important country for the UK's foreign policy. And the election's an important one because the UK treads an interesting relationship, doesn't it, at the moment, with India whilst partnering strongly, but also talking perhaps internally about democratic backsliding, just how it reacts. To that, and of course, the very strong and numerous British Indian communities that are very engaged with with India and with the UK's relationship with India. That's right. That's right. I think just simply the, you know, the, the growth of India economically. When Modi took over, it was the tenth largest economy in the world. It's now the fifth. It's got the biggest population, as I said, and you can feel, as with a number of other countries, you know, Brazil being another one, uh, you can feel its role and political significance growing, um, and is and is, that's going to continue in the in the decades ahead. So, uh, another really important reason why we need to watch this this election carefully. Yeah, thank you. That's a really really good reminder. Just emphasising the sheer size but also the rapid, rapid growth and move in position in the world. Great. So we've, so, so we've covered elections that have the greatest international consequences. Let's go on to the next category we have, that's elections that could lead to protest or violence. Tell us, tell us briefly about those. 
I mean, a feature of, of elections in the last sort of 15 years has been that, that quite a number have led to, to protests and violence. Um, you know, the Kenyan elections uh, a few years ago, uh, you know, a, a case in point, but, but not only those elections. So got three, got three elections here that not something will do, but they have a potential to lead to protests and violence. First of all, Iran. Iran um, has parliamentary elections on the 1st of March. The first vote since the mass demonstrations that were seen in 2022. And of course, we've seen um, protests following elections in Iran before in 2009. So, you know, there's a, there's a context in which protests and violence could erupt uh, in, in Iran. Now, um, the opposition, the fix is already in, essentially, though, because 25% of Opposition candidates have already been disqualified. Um, so many Iranians are expected to boycott the vote. But what will that lead to? Could that lead to um, post-election protests and violence? Again, we need to watch that carefully. Another country that um, has also had a history, recent history of, uh, of protests, of course, is Belarus. Um, the elections that took place in uh, 2020... Um, clearly rigged by the Lukashenko uh, regime, uh, needs to be watched very, very, very closely. Alexander Lukashenko has been in power since 1994, okay, for 30 years, and he has not held a credible election in that time. Uh, I think you can you could say it's sort of uh, um, electoral fraud on an industrial scale. Every, Think of a an aspect of electoral fraud, and, and and he's generally using it. We shouldn't expect any any sort of breakthrough for the opposition. I, I'm not sure whether they're participating in these these parliamentary elections or not. But it is a country that has had, had significant protest in in the recent years, and I, I, guess, I guess that remains a possibility again. The election to really watch will be the presidential election again next year, uh, and so you know, we need to keep a, a close eye. Uh, on Belarus, and remember the the very very brave opposition politicians and civil society representatives that are that are really uh, courageously pushing for democracy uh, in that country. The th- third country is Pakistan, a country that has has had recent political turmoil, has a mixed record of running elections. Really, um, has run some good ones and some and some very poor ones. I was there during the elections in 2008 in the aftermath of the assassination of Benazir Bhutto. I was there with the European Union Election Observation Mission, and it was a fascinating election because we, uh, on the election night, we were absolutely expecting the results to be rigged, and then as they came through, they it became clear and clearer and clearer that it did not look like that was happening. And in fact, it was a, a an opposition victory. And, and my sense at the time was that the army, who has played such a role in, in, in Pakistani politics, uh, the chief of the uh, of the army had, had given a, an instruction not to manipulate those elections. And, and I think that was pretty much admitted months later. So it just shows that you know, Pakistan can run good elections when they want to, um, but uh, you know, there's, there must be real concern as to whether that's going to happen now. Imran Khan, of course, who became prime minister uh, following the election in 2018, removed from office in April 22, and uh, is now 
is now in jail, actually having been, having been charged, arrested and charged on, on, on corruption charges. And his the elections were supposed to take place in November, but have now been delayed until uh, till February. And there's real concern as to whether the conditions exist for these to be conducted fairly. There's, there's been disputes over boundaries uh, for some of the electoral constituencies, and the Election Commission has rejected Imran Khan's nomination to contest the elections, and Imran Khan has accused the, the authorities of stopping most of his candidates from participating in the elections. So I, I think I think one to really watch there, both in terms of is there a potential for it to be a credible election at all? And also, which I think is unlikely, um, but also for the potential for protest uh, and violence, which, which which certainly remains a possibility. Yeah. And let, let's go on to the next category. So from elections with the most international consequence and then elections that could lead to protest and violence, let's quickly cover ones that are unlikely to be genuine. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of elections we can see that will take place that you can say from the outset will simply not be genuine. You know, a, a genuine election is a, a requirement of international obligations. And there are three in particular work that we can look at where we can see the opposition just simply does not have a level level playing field uh, to participate. Uh, Russia, the Russian uh, presidential election will take place on the 15th of March. Uh, which Putin will uh, will win, uh, but he's really clamped down on on the opposition, on independent media. Alexei Navalny is in prison up in up near the Arctic now, uh, so so this will not be a genuine election uh, at all. Elections in Bangladesh, which will take place, I think, on the seventh of January in a few days' time. Likewise, um, the Awami League uh, will be almost certainly be re-elected. Uh, Sheikh Hasina. Um, uh, came to power uh, most recently in 2000, end of 2008, beginning of 2009, I think it was, uh, and was re-elected re- re- for, for a third term in 2018. Um, but again, has really clamped down on, on the opposition, the BNP, uh, uh, in particular, the main opposition party, and their, you know, Thousands of their of, of their leaders and um, and supporters are, are are now in jail. Again, there's no and the, and the BNP is boycotting the elections, so there's no chance of these elections being uh, being genuine. And actually, Bangladesh also has the potential for protests and violence. And then there's Rwanda, which the the British government recently legislated uh, is a safe country, but is is certainly not a, a safe democracy. Kagame has been. Uh, the president there since 2000, and following a constitutional amendment um, to adjust term limits, remains eligible to serve for another decade. So he's going to be in power for a long time. But in August 2017, he secured 98.63% of the vote, which I think gives you a good indication of the kind of democracy uh, Rwanda is. Drawn real criticism from human rights organisations, alleging suppression of political dissent, restrictions, on independent media, etc. So, uh, you know, again, the conditions are not are not there for a, a genuine election. Yeah, and and then we've got a really interesting category, which is the conflict or crisis elections, and whether that's countries actually experiencing crisis and conflict themselves or neighbouring to them. Uh, should we jump into those because they are particularly fascinating in terms of their um, the effect that they have 
often on regional stability? Yes, the first one we should look at is Ukraine. Now, there's not been a lot of coverage uh, yet of this, but Ukraine is scheduled to hold a presidential election in 2024. Uh, It's unclear as to whether it will go ahead. There are arguments for and there are arguments against. I mean, of course, the arguments against are, you know, this is a country at war, uh, a, a, a sort of normal election can't take place, um, voting will not be able to take place in parts of the country, uh, which are under occupation, foreign occupation by the Russians. Uh, millions of Ukrainians remain displaced from their homes. At the same time, there's an argument that says, you know, uh, Ukraine is a democracy and it, you know, it, it shouldn't let the war um, uh, undercut that or, or undermine its democracy in any way. And it'll be a, a strong demonstration of its, of its democracy to continue with these elections, uh, in contrast to, to Russia, which we just mentioned. So we'll wait and see. But, but, but uh, a, an interesting election, and, Moldo- and Ukraine has had a, a history of very, very interesting elections over the years. And if this was to take place, this would be uh, another one. With, of course, huge implications for international observers. Would they be deployed? How would they operate? Uh, and I know this has been talked about and considered um, at the moment. Connected to Ukraine is Moldova, um, where just on the 24th of December, their pro-European president, Maya Sandu, has said that she will uh, run for a second term uh, in elections due at the end of the year, but very significantly has called on Parliament to begin preparations for uh, a referendum on the country joining the EU. Um, In December, there was, of course, the EU summit that gave the go-ahead to start membership talks, uh, and so she's wanting a a referendum to be held on this um, in in the autumn. And with the potential for Russian interference in that election, that is another one that needs to be watched uh, carefully. Moving on to Venezuela, let's shift continents here. Again, a country that's been in in turmoil for, for, for years, But encouragingly, um, officials from the government and the opposition have reached an agreement to establish uh, initial steps for an upcoming presidential election. The government has agreed to invite international observers, uh, scheduled for the the latter part of 2024. So that could be an important moment for Venezuela. South Sudan. Uh, a country that's, of course, the the world's youngest country, a country that's been experiencing civil war really, really since it became um, a a, a country, is scheduled to have elections in December, but there are real doubts as to whether these will take place. There's no constitution, there's no voter register, um, the election commission has just been appointed, there's no demarcated constituencies. Uh, And the UN UN in, in, in last month stated that the country was in no position to hold free, fair or secure elections, but stressed there was time to catch up. So uh, I think likely there won't be elections, but there remains a chance. So um, let's hope for some some progress in, in South Sudan. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in and just mention some of the West African countries that may or may not have elections this year um, around the Sahel and point people to the podcast previously on on the Sahelian crisis, which I know a lot of listeners have been 
really enjoying. We talked to the former Minister of Energy of Burkina Faso and he gave some real insights into the realities on the ground for Sahelian countries. We're going to come on to Senegal and Ghana later, aren't we? Um, Mauritania has a has an election that's important because it establishes its reputation and has been growing it's growing itself as an anchor point for the international community as it interacts with the countries across the Sahel that are more unstable and ruled by military junta people will be watching whether Mali and Chad call elections uh, Chad is more likely to than Mali and if Chad does call elections that's important for Chad because it would move from being a a country that has been ruled by junta and then civilian transition government into an elected president which is important for its future nearby togo likely to also have elections and again this is all a bigger picture of stability and security across the region one election in one country spreads and has contagion factors across to others and it's the big story from the last few years of west africa of various countries um falling to military coups and of course either getting back to democracy or some of the more stable countries maintaining their democracy becomes extremely important for the whole region's stability. Is there another one, Mozambique? Yeah, Mozambique will hold elections this year as well. Of course, they after the civil war, they, they held their first elections after the civil war in, in, in 94 and have held a number of elections since. But there is a there is a prolonged insurgency that's been going on since 2017, um, which has killed thousands of people. So... Uh, again, another one that needs to be to be followed um, carefully, um, and, and to see whether those elections can be can be conducted well uh, in the conditions in which they will happen. And should we, having touched a little bit on various African countries, there, should we jump to the potential upsets because they're interesting. These these two are interesting, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They are. And they're two countries that are. Very, very important players on the African continent, South Africa and Senegal, you know, countries that are real sort of pillars at both ends of the of the continent and, and important players uh, in the African Union uh, and in the case of, of South Africa in Sadak and um, Senegal in ECOWAS. And they're both holding important elections um, this year. To turn to South Africa first, um, for the first time since the post-apartheid election in 1994, which saw the election of Nelson Mandela, the ANC could lose its overall majority. The majority has been going down um, over the last 30 years, but has never really been under threat. But there is a chance now that, that it could be lost. The Democratic Alliance um, white-led centrist opposition party uh, who are in charge of the Western Cape province are likely to be the main contender. And there is the, you know, there is the potential for an upset here. I think it's most likely that the ANC, in possible coalition with the, the economic freedom fighters, will, will, will remain with a, a majority uh, together. But the party is likely to be punished by voters for corruption, leadership scandals, 
high rates of crime and unemployment, and, and its inability literally to keep the lights on. Uh, daily power cuts for up to six hours have become routine um, in, in South Africa. So definitely one to watch, uh, watch closely there. At Senegal, also, there is the, the governing party is, will be working hard and hoping to, to maintain its grip on power, but does also face a, a tough fight from, from opposition groups. I, mean, I think to be said that you know, South Africa has, um, probably along with Ghana, has uh, run some of the best elections in Africa. They've got a, a, a very good election commission, and you know, I, I, I was there in 1999, and even then they were running good elections. That's just been improved ever since. So, sort of structurally, they've got uh, got very good elections. But there was an important moment when Macky Sall said he wouldn't stand for a third election term. Was that they're there in response to real pressure from civil society? And my biggest takeaway about Senegal is that the vibrancy and the passion and the pride in mm. democracy and in choosing their leader is 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 very clear and yes. very and and therefore very important that that decision was taken around not standing for a third term uh, which would be unconstitutional but also a, a real really good example of what we mentioned at the beginning of younger generations pushing pushing their leadership, pushing their governments to the future. Yeah, and I think also, you know, both South Africa and Senegal have the potential uh, to run really very good elections, which will be, you know, a, a very positive development for the, for the continent. So, you know, technically, let's, let's really hope that they, those elections are well conducted. Do you want to touch briefly on we've we've got a category about controversial elections, haven't we? And then and then interesting, really excited to go on to the good news stories. Yeah, there's just, just an interesting controversial. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's many controversial elections, but there's there's one that, that drew my attention, which is El Salvador. Not a country I've ever been to, but one that has been in the news a little bit in the last year or two because of President uh, Bukit. Bukele's, his clampdown, his very strict clampdown on the country's powerful street gangs. You may remember we've seen pictures of, you know, hundreds of prisoners being rounded up, moved prisons, um, and a real show of force there. Uh, and actually, it's led to him to become very popular within the country. Uh, questions, I think, to be raised about, about some of the actions he's taking, but it, it has led to him becoming popular. Now, there's elections uh, supposed to be taking place in October 2023, but the controversy is that he has registered himself as his party's candidate to seek re-election, but the constitution prohibits such a move. So it remains to be seen as to how that will play out in the coming months. Great. Yeah, well, let's dive into some good news stories because yeah. there are a number of countries that are really con have been consolidating their election processes and democracy on there. And it's worth us having that as a context to those ones when we watch their coverage. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at a time when democracy in many ways is under threat and is uh, regressing in, in, in a number of countries, it's really important that we focus on, on good, good stories. Uh, and, and Indonesia is a, is a very good example of, of that. The most populous country in Southeast Asia uh, it holds the largest single-day election event. 
Uh, it's an extraordinary logistical challenge. And they'll be electing a president, a vice president, and then 20,000 representatives to national, provincial, um, and district parliaments from a pool of a quarter of a million candidates. Extraordinary numbers. I was in uh, Indonesia in 2004, and I was just struck by the numbers. If, if my memory is correct, I think there was a million uh, people involved with organising those elections, which is an astonishing number. Um, so it's remarkable that actually elections have been conducted pretty well um, since Indonesia became a democracy after the fall of Suharto. Another country that's consolidating its democracy is Mexico. They've been holding democratic elections since 2000. And again, we can see consolidation since then. Interestingly, Mexico has a very strong and well-respected electoral authority. And that's been one of the reasons they've been able to hold um, relatively good elections. What's interesting this year is that the, the presidential election in June will be between two female candidates, which is encouraging in terms of women's participation and will have, of course, implications for relations with the United States and the rest of Latin America. Then moving on to, to, uh, to Ghana. Ghana is a good news story, I think, because uh, they've run pretty good elections. They've had a, a well-respected uh, election management body. And significantly, they have had a number of changes of power, which is a you know, symptomatic of a healthy democracy. They've gone from one party to another a number of times um, since, since they returned to democracy in the 90s. The election this year is again likely to be a cliffhanger, so it's going to have to be very carefully managed and handled by the election commission. Yeah, great. I want to bring us, we're going to come back nearer home, aren't we? Into, into Europe. We've got the European Parliament elections, which is actually the second largest vote by population in 2024, isn't it, behind India? And we've also got a couple of others we'll be keeping an eye on in Europe. Tell us about, tell us about political risk elections. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I think there's a number of elections going on in Europe, both in, in, in some of the large, larger countries and in some of the smaller countries. I think San Marino and has elections and Liechtenstein has a referendum, I, I, I think. But there's there's a couple that I think will be followed particularly carefully uh, after the recent success of the far right in, in the Netherlands. And that's Austria and Belgium, where right-wing populist uh, parties uh, have the potential uh, to, to, to do well. Um, and then, uh, and again, in the, as you said, in the European Parliament, there is the potential for that to also happen there. And were you know these populist parties to do well, that would have an implication for transatlantic ties. It could coincide with Trump being re-elected and also could have implications for support to Ukraine. So some very important elections to be watched to see whether this populist trend that we've seen in Europe will continue or whether it can be arrested as we saw recently in Poland, with the, with the victory of, of, of Donald Tusk and his coalition. 
Yeah, and so that they're ones that political analysts will be really looking yeah. at, won't they, to try and draw out the wider trends and wider implications for both governments, business and neighbouring countries. And of course, we have to mention the UK election. Something that struck me, actually, as I've looked at these elections across the, across the globe and talked to others is uh, people are quite surprised that we don't know when our election will be. <laughs> that's that's not everyone's experience, is it? And that's a very interesting uh, political context in the UK this year. Yeah, that's right. Well, we after Rishi Sunak's comments before Christmas, we, we now know the election will take place this year. Um, and the speculation is most likely it will be in May or in October. I, I've been in October person for quite some time and that's my continuing view politically of course it's uh, a fascinating election which certainly looks like a, a labor victory it, it really looks as though the tories are exhausted and also that the the country appears to have had appears now to have a settled view that it's time for change i remember in 1992 after Black Wednesday, John Major's government never recovered from that point. And there was a subtle view after that that there was a time for a change. And I think a similar moment happened during Liz Truss's brief uh, premiership. Uh, and if you look at the polls now, they've been fairly stable since then. So it now appears to be a question of, more of a question of whether Labour will win a landslide or whether they would be in coalition or, in a worst-case scenario, a minority government. But I think that's the, the land, the, the, uh, a Labour majority is looking more and more likely. Uh, I think also um, it, it looks likely that Labour will do well in Scotland, which, the, which is a, a positive development for them. And I, I have a feeling that the Lib Dems are going to do pretty well in the south and west of England, which, again, will, will squeeze the, the Conservatives. So, you know, that's the way it's looking uh, at the moment. And it, and it has, has looked that way for, for some time now. A um, couple of things to also think about. Uh, technically, this is going to be the first election in the United Kingdom where everyone will need ID to vote. Uh, there was a pilot project done um, recently, and I think I'm right in saying that ID has been needed for, for some time in, in, in Northern Ireland. Um, but that will really put pressure on um, poll workers. And, um, you know, there's not a huge knowledge of this need at the moment within the country. So there's going to be a need for educating uh, voters. And, you know, also, what could this lead to um, to a lower turnout? Could it lead to allegations of voter suppression? Uh, that needs to be looked at uh, carefully. I mean, Britain's unusual, it has to be said, in, in terms of not requiring um, voter ID. I never forget in the 97 election, you know, walking into, I woke up and found there was a polling station in the building I was uh, I was living in. And I literally walked downstairs and said, oh, I, I live upstairs and I'm here to vote, which is, you know, most countries would would, would find that incomprehensible. Um, at the same time, we don't have uh, national ID cards. So it is a particularly difficult thing to, and controversial thing to introduce in the UK. I, I think the other question, other questions to look at are, as always, um, expenditure on these elections. Um, that, I think, needs to be followed very, very carefully, not least in light of um, what took place during the uh, the referendum by the um, by the Leave campaign, um, 
and also the potential for for foreign interference. We've never, and I think this is quite shocking from a democracy and national security viewpoint, we have n- never had a investigation or a proper investigation into Russian interference in uh, in the Brexit vote and elections. And that, I think, is deeply, deeply, deeply concerning. Um, and so we need to be really uh, awake for that. And I really hope at some point that still happens. I really hope that you know, the next government of whichever political persuasion takes that seriously, because I think for the future of our democracy and our national security, it's really important that we have a thorough and in-depth look at the interference that has undoubtedly taken place. The question, I think, is simply the degree to which it has had an influence on, on, on results. Particularly when a result is so close. Correct. Correct. And just for our international listeners, it's it's worth wrapping this UK up uh, part up by pointing out that it's 13 years that um, of Conservative government. So this, um, if Labour wins, this is a or rules within coalition or minority government. This is a significant change for policy areas across the board for the UK. That's that's important. It is. Um, it is. And also that Labour had a very low number of MPs at the last election. So it's also a big jump. It's a significant moment of change for it the is. UK. It is. We, there's been, you know, there's been you know, a number of very significant elections sort of post-war elections, you know, 45, 79, 97 being three of the most important. And there is a you know, there is a potential for this to be another defining moment in British politics. And it, uh, other countries will be wondering what that means for our foreign affairs. And I think it's fair to say that that's still, that's still to come to light, probably. There are some indications of where that's going. But the Labour Party has also been careful to follow national positions on some of the big issues of today and is likely to continue to do that at least until the election. So we will, I think many of us, be following carefully what's being said from the Labour side because we would expect it to mean some different things in foreign policy. Uh, But of course, it's domestic policy that's the focus right now in the pre-election period. Let's finish then by mentioning any any surprises any last ones you want to wrap up with and then i'm interested to just briefly talk about the the big themes we're seeing yeah well most most years bring some surprise elections you know elections that were that were not scheduled and are, and are, and are suddenly called early for a variety of reasons and actually we've got one already uh, um in, in azerbaijan um President Aliyev has called a snap presidential election for February the 7th. Uh, the vote was initially set for 2025, um, but after Azerbaijan, um, after, after their recent conquest of the entirety of Nagorno-Karabakh, his population has surged and he's called, uh, he's called an, an election. I mean, Azerbaijan effectively um, ethnically cleansed Nagorno-Karabakh of, of the Armenian population, um, taking advantage of the geopolitical situation, uh, and now he's seeking to uh, to capitalise on that. Another country that could have an election that is currently not scheduled, I think, is Israel. Uh, very sadly, the, the war continues um, in Gaza, 
Um, but I think it's quite clear that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's long-term uh, political career is over and probably his short-term and medium-term career as well. Uh, and I think there's a, there's, there's a real possibility that he'll be removed either without an election or with an election uh, in the coming months and possibly, I think quite possibly, even in the coming, the coming weeks. And of course, uh, you know, eventually, when the conflict comes to an end, at some point, um, there will hopefully be, be, be Palestinian elections as well. The last uh, elections took place uh, in 2005 and 2006, so it's a long time uh, since, since, since Palestine has held elections. There's also um, snap election being called in, in, in uh, Portugal, and, um, uh, and Sri Lanka is due to have an election as well this year. And, and undoubtedly, uh, a country that we haven't even mentioned will, will, will probably emerge and have a, an important um, election. You know, political leaders you, you die at unexpected moments or there can be uh, um, difficult political developments that could lead to, um, to elections. And one final uh, surprising election that could take place is in the Vatican State. Uh, the Pope's health is clearly deteriorating, and there is speculation that he may step aside and retire uh, following the example of his predecessor. Now, what's interesting about elections in the Vatican State is they are, uh, Vatican State is the only member state of the OSCE that's not have its election observed by international observers. It's a very, very, very secret uh, election, and I think the ballot papers are burnt after after the uh, the results are known. And what a way to end our Woodstock tour. I mean, I think this conversation shows just when we say 40% at least of the world's population go to the polls, how significant that is for the globe, how significant it is for international relations between those countries. Do you have any final thoughts? Having been on the ground and watched elections around what you'll be watching for or the themes that you see. Yeah, just a few final questions for us to be thinking about uh, as these elections unfold. First of all, will these elections strengthen or weaken democracy around the world? I think that's a really important question for us to ask. Uh, we're seeing some of these elections almost becoming a referendum on democracy itself. Uh, at a time when democracy is under threat. So we need to watch that carefully. Secondly, how much international interference will take place in elections and how effective will you know, credible and strong democracies be in terms of countering this interference? Thirdly, how much will, will the West be willing to stand up for democracy? I think there are some worrying indications in Bangladesh, uh, for example, right now, that uh, the West may be willing to turn uh, turn a blind eye to, to some some uh, some elections that really uh, require you know, criticism and um, expressions of of concern. That's a that's a question to follow as well. Uh, another thought is how much backbone would international observers have? I think we've seen a a worrying decline in. Uh, definitive conclusions being drawn by international observers, which has often led their statements to be um, unclear and interpreted in different ways. I think that's that's a worrying development that I really hope we'll start to see uh, turn around this this coming year. 
and also how much freedom will citizen observers, who are playing such an important role, how much freedom will they have to operate uh, and to call elections uh, truthfully and honestly? And then finally, what, what's going to be the impact of the increasing use of technology? That's been a development that's been ongoing, um, but more and more, and of course you mentioned AI now, um, what is the impact of, of, of all of this going to be on, on elections during the, during the course of the year? Yeah, great. Um, one more from me. I think uh, not not everywhere, of course, but in many places, elections are moments of excitement, of engagement and of dreaming and imagining the future of countries, aren't they? And whether they whether those views and dreams and pictures that are painted are listened to and uh, whether they make it through even to to be somebody represented on the ballot paper. I think that's uh, somewhere for us to land in terms of thinking about how many people across the world in 2024 will be thinking about their country and its future and their hopes and dreams for their families and communities. That's right. And maybe maybe to end on, on a hope, let's really hope that young people get out and uh, and not only not only vote, but also really participate in these elections as as observers, as candidates, as agents, as you know, election officials. It's that will be you know, if, if if at the end of the year we could say yes, there was a real strong participation by young people, that would give us encouragement for for the years ahead. Amazing! Thank you so much, Andy. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to us together observing what happens in each of these elections. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, where Britain meets the world. Subscribe today, share it with a friend or colleague, and be part of shaping Britain's role on the global stage.